to the latest episode of The Vegan Pod, where myself, Rachel New, am guest hosting once again, this time on the topic of Vegantopia. In honour of today's International Day of Peace, we're discussing whether a fully vegan world can ever be possible. The latest pre-COVID stats from the Vegan Society in 2019 showed veganism in Britain had quadrupled over five years. Now, whilst this is pretty incredible, the figure is just 1% of Brits, with more recent data published by YouGov suggesting that this has risen to between two and three percent. This means there's still a very long road ahead before veganism is considered the norm in this country, let alone the world. And while a vegan world is surely the common end goal for vegan individuals, campaigns and organisations, how feasible is it really? Will we ever realise the dream of vegan society founder Donald Watson's vegan utopia? To discuss this, I'm joined by lecturer of sociology and co-director of the Centre for Study of Social and Political Movements at the University of Kent, Dr. Corey Wren, along with animal rights author Benny Malone, who wrote the book Essential to Every Vegan Toolkit, How to Argue with Vegans, an analysis of anti-vegan arguments. Uh, Welcome, both of you. Thank you so much for coming on the pod. Cheers. Glad to be here. Thank you. Thanks for asking me. Uh, I start this um, by asking, it's a bit like, you know, a kind of questions you might ask on a first date when you're getting to know people, you know, so I start by asking about your journey into veganism. Corey, how did it start for you? Well, it's, I think, a little bit unusual because I grew up in Appalachia, um, come from a very poor family in the mountains of Virginia. Vegetarianism was pretty foreign, much less veganism. And basically, I was watching a cooking show with my mother, and the uh, the host of the show went to a butcher shop, and they showed pigs' heads hanging from chains in the butcher shop. And so I made that connection at about 13 years old. And then this is the days before the internet. But I wrote, actually wrote to PETA, and PETA sent me a bunch of like literature, and that's where I learned about what veganism was. And I said, that's what I want to be, but it was really difficult for my parents to accommodate even vegetarianism. Like I said, we grew up really, really poor. Um, and I was on the free lunch program and all that. So it didn't really leave a lot of flexibility about my food choice, but I said, I tell you what, <laughs> the first day I move out of the house and I'm responsible for my own food, that's the day I go vegan. And so that was August of 2001. So um, well over 20 years of being a vegan now. Wow. Um, yeah, that does sound like a difficult journey. I remember as a child, I, I never, I don't remember a time where I ever enjoyed or wanted to eat meat and um, it was a constant battle but I grew up um, in a middle-class family in London where um, you know in the 60s where people were just dabbling with vegetarianism so I had a bit more a bit more opportunity and a bit more choice uh, but it was difficult I had a lot of um, I had a lot of rice with tomato ketchup on it and pasta with butter on it as, a, as my vegetarian option so um but yeah amazing amazing that you you made that connection um which is something i think we should all uh, i think it's something we will be talking about in this episode actually making that connection because i think that is absolutely key to any uh, any attempt at a vegan utopia and what about you benny uh, what was your journey yeah so i think we're going to discuss about the tamworth too maybe a bit later but um, they were a pair of pigs that escaped from slaughter that they were destined for. So I think that was really the first kind of news story I saw on TV to get me thinking about animals and the issues surrounding how we use animals. And then with the BSE crisis as well that we had in the 90s, made me start thinking about my food a bit more and where it comes from. So 
I did go vegetarian first and it was really coming onto social media and um, I got educated more about veganism because I saw this uh, one page that was called uh, veganism is not a diet and I always thought it was a diet so naturally I uh, had a look at that website and everything and it kind of expanded on the idea of it not being a diet it's more of a philosophy it's more of a position or a principle that you adopt and then your actions follow logically from that principle then. And then there was another Facebook page called the bloody dairy industry. And I really had no clue about the dairy industry and the common practices and the exploitation that takes place within the dairy industry. And then you get educated. I didn't really eat eggs anyway, but then I'd certainly learned more about that anyway. And then there's further issues from that. So. It was finding out it was more of a principle than a diet, really, because I think when I was vegetarian, it was more of a personal choice. Um, and you'll often see that with vegetarians that we talk to as vegans as well. They see it as more of a personal choice. Whereas I think vegans are more active in campaigning and that type of thing. It's interesting that it's pigs that brought you both, um, you know, beautiful, intelligent, delightful pigs that that brought you both to veganism. Um, yeah, so the Tamworth 2. Um, Corey, do you remember or are you aware of the Tamworth 2? I don't know how long you've been in, in England, but it was two pigs that escaped. And, you know, you, you, this is the sort of story that you get all the time. It's usually turkeys escaping at Christmas and everyone's behind them and they want them to escape and they want them to be saved. And when the farmer gets them back, everyone's like, no, you can't kill them. And it's just this crazy bonkers sort of disconnect between you know, everyday eating habits um, and, you know, everyone's choice to eat meat and then this desire to, you know, kind of single out, um, you know, a particular animal, a particular moment. Uh, so, Benny, I want to talk to you a little bit about that. Um, what do you think, what do you think is going on there, you know, when, when people, you know, get right behind, you know, one pig or one turkey or, um, you know, what, what is what's going on and what's the narrative when people are suddenly paying attention but they actually don't make any changes in their in their life so yeah psychologically i think um people are seeing just the end product when they go to the supermarket that type of thing but then seeing animals on the news especially when they're escaping slaughter that type of thing you you make the connection more to them being that product came from an individual and then what was that individual like? And then certainly with the Tamworth too. So just to briefly describe what happened there, they were a pair of pigs that escaped. They were being unloaded from a lorry uh, to go to the slaughterhouse. And that was in January, 1998. Um, then people named them Butch and Sundance after Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which is kind of giving them this kind of outlaw aspect of they're these pigs on the run. So it did get sensationalized a bit and it tends to be those kind of stories that um, newspapers love to pick up on as well. Like you say, with turkeys escaping. And I think even more recently, there was a pig that escaped and hid out in the woods, uh, Matilda. She ended up at Earthling Ed's uh, sanctuary. You've got to um, love a pig. I tell you, you've got, yeah. you've got to love a pig. They're the best. <laughs> They do make a break for it if they can, yeah. <laughs> but I think that's it as well. You think, um, you know, this pig wants to escape. They don't want to be trapped. They want to live on their own terms and 
not be confined. And obviously, I think they can um, sense when they're going to be slaughtered as well. Um, so anyway, they escaped. Um, interesting facts. I might not have even picked up on this at the time, but they were five months old when they were to be sent to slaughter. And um, yeah, I don't even think I thought of that at the time, but thinking about it now, that's the age of most pigs when they're getting slaughtered. You know, they are the equivalent of puppies getting slaughtered, basically. They're sent to gas chambers. So they were being taken to lorry. Uh, just as they were getting unloaded, they escaped. They squeezed through the fence. They swam across the river and then they hiding out in nearby gardens and in thicket around the area. So they were estimated to be 40 to 50 pounds each they're worth. And I think that's another thing with vegans, we think animals are worth more than their price. Mm. And then um, the owner, he stated to the news by this time, there's a bit of a media circus picking up on the story and people are kind of rooting for the animals as well there. So he said he intended to send them to slaughter should they be recaptured. And I think that's when the public then are on the side of the pigs, not wanting them to be slaughtered. But that got me thinking, well, what's special about these pigs that have escaped versus all the pigs that won't be so lucky? It surely can't be the fact that they've just been, you know, they've had the uh, kind of, you know, um, intuition to escape. All those other pigs would escape if they could, mm. but maybe they just haven't had the opportunity. So for me, that was making the connection to the other animals. They're individuals as well. They would want to escape if they could. Also, hearing their their actual, you know, their actual journey, swimming across the river, hiding out, you know, it really makes you think about the the cognizance there and about the fact that they they, they knew they needed to escape. You know, they every bit of their instinct. You know, people talk about well, animals. You know, they're fine that they're, they're living a life and they don't know anything about it until the very last minute. You know, uh, but but obviously these pigs really wanted to get away. Um, so, Corey, you're a you're a sociologist. I'm really interested in what's going on in people's heads. Um, you know, what's going on with society when you, you've got this sort of you've got this story like this where you've got an animal that is you know destined for slaughter that people normally eat without even thinking about, um, and then suddenly they're all backing these pigs because you know when it when it's this story. But you've also got this sort of everyday speciesism where. You know, bonfire night is one for me where people are posting all over social media. Oh, no, please don't like fireworks because, you know, it's going to really scare my dog, which, of course, is a really valid point. But it's like, how about all those animals that are scared every day um, all their life because, you know, they're, they're destined to be food or that, you know, they're part of that, uh, you know, consumer chain. Um, what is it with people? Because this is, you know, this is the people are the stumbling block, obviously, completely to mm -hmm. us having a you know vegan utopia. What's going on with people, Corey? Well, actually, I'm not sure if I would say people. Um, I think in a lot in the activist community and certainly in psychology, which tends to dominate the activist kind of discourse, we focus a lot on the individuals, the cognitive dissonance bit. Of course, that's there. But in sociology, we try to step back from the individual a little bit more because it's not quite that simple. Most people care about animals. Most people would say they're an animal lover or you know, they're not anti-animal. Um, but what we're dealing with is systems and power. So basically you can have a population of people who consider themselves uh, caring and compassionate and responsible towards others and you know, fighting for the vulnerable groups and yet still participating in speciesism. 
And a lot of that is simply because we built systems that enable it. It makes it easier to do that, which is one of the kind of tricky things about veganism becoming more and more popular. And a lot of the reason it's becoming popular is all about consumer choice and not necessarily about the ethics of it. However, I think it will facilitate a bit of a system change to make it easier to make vegan choices. So we need, I think as a sociologist, I'm here to kind of rep that sociological perspective. We need to get away from thinking about the inner kind of dilemma in each individual mind, because that's the way activists go at it. Like, how can I convince this person to change their ways? And we think about like so many podcasts I've been on where we start off just like that. But what made you go vegan, the individual person? And what was your psychological kind of turmoil? But actually, sociology is all about thinking, how have we built a system that enables it to be the path of least resistance to participate in speciesism? How have we created a society where it is easier to eat animals and harder to eat vegan? When for all these rational reasons, we should be eating vegan, not just for animal rights, which is number one, but also for the sustainability of the, the planet we live on and for our own personal well-being health-wise. So sociology is pushing towards looking at systems. And part of looking at systems is also looking at power. Because who, does, who builds these systems? Well, we all participate in the systems. So I don't want to say abscond individuals. We all participate in the system and help make, help make it move smoothly. But systems tend to be dominated and manufactured and kind of um, replicated by groups in power. So we have a deeply, deeply, deeply unequal social system on a, lot, a large number of fronts, first and foremost, looking at wealth inequalities. We have more uh, global inequality than we've ever had. We've had each year, actually, this is, I think, one of the most um, kind of sobering statistics. If you go and look, I used to do, I found this out by accident, wasn't really thinking about it. When I used to teach intro sociology and I was teaching about class inequality, wealth inequality, I would just, I would start off with a figure of here's how many people are in poverty and here's how many people are billionaires on the planet. And it started, when I started teaching, it was something like, I don't know, 800 or 900 billionaires. And we just kind of like, don't really think about what that number means, a billionaire, all that wealth, which doesn't just come from nowhere, it comes from other people. But each year that I taught it, it just goes up and up and up and up. When we hit the Great Recession, it really went up. Now we have like thousands of billionaires on the planet. So right now we're seeing a major, major, major kind of uh, ex expansion of inequality. So this is what we need to be thinking about in the background of speciesism, because a lot of that wealth is built on the exploitation of other animals. And the people who are at the top, the people who have all that power and all that wealth, have what we call in sociology symbolic capital. So there's economic capital, right? The ability to buy things or whatever. There's social capital, being able to you know, pull on people you know. The symbolic capital tends to be a culmination of all those other types of capital where you get to create the reality of the society we live in. You get to create the rules uh, of the game that we all have to play. And so that's what we're looking at sociology. It's not so much about each individual's kind of headspace. We need to be thinking about how does the system get to be built the way it is? Who is in control of that system? Who is profiting from that system? Who is the system benefiting? And how can we then push back on that system and restructure it in a way? And this is where it turns, tends to bump in, into, into the activist community because we're so focused on those individual changes. But also, I think activists get a little bit afraid about how do we challenge systemic problems because it's very intimidating. So we tend to go for reforms. Well, let's just make things a little bit nicer for animals and slaughterhouses or give them a little bit more cage space or you know, whatever it may be, which actually does not do anything to challenge the system, but in fact, helps that system to continue running smoothly because people don't have to worry so much about you know, that terrible uh, animal uh, 
animal violence that makes us uncomfortable. And unfortunately, a lot of that welfare reform also streamlines the system and making it more profitable. And there's lots and lots of evidence that supports that. So I just, I know I kind of went on a tirade there, but I just wanted to emphasize that when we're talking about how to make more people vegan, too often we focus on the people, the individuals, the psychology, the personality, instead of thinking about the system and the gross inequality that we're dealing with uh, at a global level, but also in, in a national level here in the UK. Thank you, Corey. That was both fascinating and terrifying. Um, so, um, like, that's given me so much to think about. I'm like already thinking, okay, we need to do another episode after this episode that takes a really deep dive into that. So, so thank you very much, um, Benny. You are an activist, so I so I'm definitely not going to say that you and, and <laughs> Corey are on different sides of you know we're all we're all wanting the same thing out of this. But in your book, you mentioned political economist Jan Dutchiewicz, um, vegan paradox theory, where he believes that veganism can be feasibly achieved on a mass scale. Um, and that is what people are afraid of, that it, that it will happen. Can you expand a little bit on this? And do you agree with the paradox theory? Yeah, so it was something I saw him do on Twitter. He's a really good one to follow on Twitter. He says, I think people make veganism, animal-free food production into this massive issue because it's actually a feasible change within the parameters of our currently existing system. Call it the vegan paradox. And this was after a long thread, so that was kind of the conclusion to it. So basically, I think I, I'd phrase something similar that people aren't afraid that vegans are wrong. They're afraid that we're right. You know, so it... it it's the fear that it's actually feasible rather than unfeasible and the fear that it is something that is practical and could be achieved rather than something that couldn't be achieved. So that's why farmers fear it, because they think, well, in a generation, if people suddenly start thinking we don't need animal agriculture or they suddenly develop you know, more of an ethical stance against it, it could be gone within a generation. And I think... That's the fear that, you know, a lot of organized religions have and monarchy has as well. You know, you could link it to all these things. But uh, to go back to Corey's points, that was totally fascinating. Gave me so many things to think about. I was making notes there. Um, I, think, I think with that, it's making it easier for people to empathize or use their natural empathy as well. To, um, you know, because when I empathize with those pigs, maybe that was kind of like almost a chance event. If I hadn't come across that story, would I be vegan now, you know? So if there's no system in place or no kind of activism in place to guide people kind of along a vegan pathway, then it's much more difficult. I think we're kind of relying on individual change, you know, one person educating one person. Where, and if those systems aren't in place, then it's a lot harder. But yeah, so I do agree with Jan's analysis there. I don't think it's universally applicable, but uh, where it comes up, I think it's true, yeah. I think I think the thing, uh, and again, you you know probably be able to correct me on this, uh, Corey. I think the thing is, I think people are terrified of having their choice taken away, which of course the systems do that to us all the time. You know, we have very little choice. But I think people are. I know. But I think people. You know, I think that's what people would say. You know, I mean, you know, oh, if I had a pound for every time someone said, oh, I just couldn't give up cheese, and people say that as a thing. You know, when you say you're vegan, they just say it to you like. It's like it's some kind of compulsion to spit that out at you. You know, you haven't even you're not trying to make them go vegan or anything. And um, but I think people are terrified um, of a lack of choice. But the thing that astounds me is that 
and actually, Corey, you you helped put a lot of that in in place in my head now and made me understand it a bit better. But I think a lot of what astounds me is that all the evidence is there that everything would be better, the environment would be better, our health would be better, you know, everything would be better. You know, um, obviously for the animals it would be better, but even take that out of the equation, you know, everything else would be better if we even if it wasn't to be a completely vegan society but if we just made a sea change towards that if all that those crops that were grown to feed animals were just grown to feed people you know boom just you know that, that that's such a big change do you think it is possible and obviously you come Benny from the point of view of you know just trying to change individuals and maybe maybe groups of individuals if you're doing it on social media and you you know you're getting a you've got lots of followers and you can do that you know a little quicker and Corey obviously you know you you know it's a system down thing as far as you're concerned well I mean I wouldn't say that I wouldn't say that exactly I think that that's just an underappreciated aspect of it yeah but do you think it's possible I mean and how do we you know let the three of us now right how can we get this pincer move going on you know like what what does need to change to you know to have this vegan utopia this world where we no longer eat and and use animals you know against their will well, I, I guess I'll jump jump in first here. Um, first off, I want to clarify, I come from an activist background. I only became a, an animal rights uh, academic when I started with uh, my PhD, like I don't, back in 2008 or so. So I've always been an activist, been an activist since I was a kid for animals. So I, I really do. And also, by the way, my, my specialization is in social movements. So I'm very much a believer in the importance of social movements. Social movements are very vital in challenging that socially constructed reality and the the privilege benefiting, I mean, the the systems that benefit the privilege. So social movements are very, very, very important for that. And I'm not at all negating them, but I'm also suggesting that one of the things that social movements ought to look at is how do we alter systems instead of just trying to change people's minds, which is important. We should also start um, putting some effort into systemic change. So for instance, uh, the European Union uh, on one hand says we need to fight climate change. Climate change is a serious crisis and we need to prioritize that. And on the other hand, each year gives millions and millions and millions of euros to animal agriculture, which is the absolute antithesis of that. So putting more pressure on agricultural entities, um, in, like in the United Nations, by the way, is kind of getting hip to this, putting more pressure on them to stop funding animal agriculture and start funding more sustainable plant-based agriculture. By the way, farmers are extremely down and out because of not just the vegan pushback, but also the fact that the farming industry is not what it once was. It's increasingly hierarchical, it's increasingly concentrated. And so a lot of farmers are living in poverty, high rates of uh, suicide. And so actually it would be a big boon to farmers to start even at a more at a national level or community level to start, start supporting farmers away from animal agriculture in that way. So we do need to make sure we're nurturing social movements, but we also need to make sure that the social movements aren't just focused on you know, street protests and getting the word out, but also pushing for some systemic changes. Maybe that also means involved getting in the voting. And the last bit I will say before I turn it over is when we're looking at social movements themselves, they have historically been very vulnerable to co-optation from those privileged groups, from industry. So social movements, especially since the 1970s across the board, but especially with the animal rights movement, when we're looking at the late 80s and early 1990s, these movements have been co-opted. They've become increasingly influenced by neoliberal policies. So it's all about how much money can we raise and now increasingly effective um, advocacy sort of thing that's coming up. But 
what that does is unfortunately it waters down our message. And if people are interested in learning more about this, my second book called Piecemeal Protest, I document the 40 years of the animal rights movement. And you can see the effect that neoliberalization and nonprofitization has had on our movement. It's increasingly de-radicalized it. And it's only been in the past few years, I would argue, that veganism and animal, the animal rights message is starting to come back. And that's in spite of the nonprofits. This is a resurgence of grassroots and feminist activism that is now putting veganism at the forefront again. So I think the vegan society is one of those last holdouts. It's a little bit more democratic, but for most of the, most of the um, nonprofits and the animal rights movement, they've increasingly compromised. So I think we also need to be thinking about systemic change within our own movement. Thank you. Benny? How are we so, going to do this? <laughs> I think it's a, it's a bit cliche, but you do need both. You know, you're going to need a population of vegans to enable change. Because if you if we just brought in policies tomorrow that totally elim eliminate things that haven't got any popular support, right. that wouldn't work. So I think, you know, you need to work on it from the kind of bottom up and the top down and definitely address the subsidies. I think it's the Agricultural Fairness Alliance uh, doing work in America to kind of lobby against the subsidies there um, and get more, you know, that will help with accessibility as well because diverting the subsidies from meat and dairy towards fruit and veg and uh, putting money into that really, making vegan food accessible to people. Um, there's this idea of tipping points as well. I think it varies from quite low figures of like 2.8% or something of a population to start, you know, really shifting opinions in society. Corey will probably know more than me about this, uh, up to like 10% and then maybe even 20%, I think there's various figures. But so the idea of that is you're not aiming for 100% to begin with in society. You're aiming for that 10% maybe, or even lower figures. But I think quite importantly, um, that group that are pushing for the change have to remain firm in their convictions in order for the change to go forward. So that's why I think, you know, vegans have to be vegan and promote veganism because no one else is going to do it. You know, we're the ones to do it. Um, whereas if we get watered down, diverted, that kind of incentive and impulse to change gets lost. So that's almost a, um, also an important aspect of the social change. Well, Corey was nodding um, to a lot of that. So I think some of your stats were probably, you know, in the ballpark. And I gave three figures, so was, one of yeah. them might be right. <laughs> I like it. I like your approach. <laughs> a little bit, of, little bit of fist pumping as well there from Corey. Uh, some of can that, I just so. say that as an American, I moved here in 2019 and I feel like America is pretty vegan friendly, but it was a complete oh, massive change when I moved. And I'm living in Canterbury, which is a university city, but nonetheless, the just saturation of veganism here is like nothing else I've ever experienced. And then I actually went back to the US this summer for a few weeks. And it just after being there for a few weeks, I realized like, gosh, I can't even just walk into super drug and check on the back as a <laughs> vegan. I can't go to McDonald's and get a vegan thing if I'm on the I'm found traveling. The only thing we have really in the United States is oh this no this was this was the big one. <laughs> it was in the airport and I went to Subway. And here you go to a subway. In the UK, you go to a subway, you get multiple vegan options. In the United States, it's exactly like it was back when I first went vegan back in 
2001 and I was on road trips and you're out in the middle of Kansas or something and you needed to stop and all and subway by the way sustained our people you go and you get a, a bread roll with salad on it and that was it and here we are in 2022 and the United States is still stuck there with the bread roll with the salad on top so in the UK I feel like that we really are kind of snowballing and it's and we'll probably reach that tipping point a lot sooner than we think that's good news i like i like to hear that um recent vegan society research for its changing diets during the covid19 pandemic report showed that almost one in four brits has cut back on animal products and now while this drop in demand means less animals are being subjected to the misery and cruelty of animal agriculture some argue that a flexitarian approach is more of a hindrance than a help to the vegan movement and i i would kind of agree with this because you know you again when people have stopped saying I couldn't give up cheese the next thing they say is oh I'm eating a lot less meat but they're not you know when you actually ask them what they ate every day this week they maybe didn't have one meal you know one meal that didn't have meat in um how do you feel um about the sort of flexitarian and some of that language and some of what people sort of say and think they're doing around cutting back I'll let Betty answer this first because I have a whole Oh, okay. So, yeah, I've got nothing against people reducing um, meat and dairy. And if they are actually, you know, taking steps to reduce their impact, that's great. I'd encourage that. But what I found with a lot of the discourse from reducitarians and flexitarians, I don't really class them as different. <laughs> but um, I'd say it's the way they position veganism. And if they think veganism is just reducitarianism, I don't agree with that because kind of just saying it's reducitarianism removes what I think veganism is, which is a position against the commodity status of animals and those set of values that we've got about valuing animals and um, their individuality, that type of thing. I think reducitarianism completely misses out on those things because they still regard animals as commodities, as ingredients, mm. as you know, resources here for us to use. I think if you if you just totally eliminate veganism like that, then you're losing our values and what we're trying to express. So that would be my disagreement with reducitarianism. Where I agree with it is if they are reducing towards a goal, and I'll try and you know genuinely trying to get towards that goal as soon as possible, which would be you know reducing to zero basically or as far as possible. Yeah, and I mean, that's a, always a really good route into veganism as well, you know, but I think you do have to give yourself goals. You've got to say, right, I'm going to cut out red meat and then, you know, give myself three months or whatever it might be. Um, but yeah, heading towards a goal, completely agree yeah. with that. What, 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 would you, yeah. what do you say to the, the flexitarian? I've never even he heard, by the way, Benny, of reducitarianism. Like, oh, this yeah. is insane. <laughs> <laughs> even heard of that can't believe how slow i am to that i never heard it so thanks for introducing me to it no, I sorry it's a learning it's a learning it's a, it's a relearning process isn't it because we have to re-socialize ourselves completely when animal using animals saturates so many aspects of our life so yeah i'm the same way i'm not here to bash anybody who's doing it the way that they need to do it fine but what i have the criticism with is when the social movement like benny very astutely said a little bit ago we have to be we have to be the ones who promote veganism if we're not the ones saying this is veganism this is why it's important and who's going to do that we are the vegan movement we're the we're the vegan activists it's our job to do that 
unfortunately for a lot of the nonprofits, which have been corporatized and nonprofitized, and now they're worried about how we're going to get grant funding in. And by the way, a lot of that grant funding comes from the state, which is very in, interested in maintaining speciesism. Uh, foundations that are built from industries are very interested in maintaining speciesism. So no surprise that you see these nonprofits in, in our movement that suddenly are scared of saying vegan. And, if, and I've actually found, it's very rare to see them being open about this, but actually with Vegan Outreach a few years back, they were in an interview. And uh, I think it was Jack Norris or Mac, Matt Ball, one of the co-founders said, yeah, we even thought about dropping vegan from our title because it, helped, it makes it difficult for us to get funding. So this is one of the main reasons why you start to see the, the so-called vegan groups not really promoting veganism. They always use this kind of watery, wishy-washy language because they want to appeal to everyone because if they don't have a strict thing about what veganism is, then really anybody could be a potential donor or supporter. And they're not really alienating those very wealthy um, foundations that are supporting them. So we need to be, again, we need to be thinking systemic about what's going on in our movement. I think that a lot of this reducitarianism crap is actually coming from our own movement because they're afraid of putting down the bottom line. We're here to, to represent other animals. And I've also, if people are interested in learning more about flexitarianism and my problem with it, you can go to my website and I've got the article up there, but I actually went and looked at some of the journal articles um, in psychology journals and uh, food studies journals about flexitarianism. And actually people will self-identify as reducers or flexitarians because you know, for a lot of people nowadays, it's cool. It's cool to say, I don't, I don't eat that much meat or even for people who don't care about animals, it seems as a, it's a positive identity marker when you say, I don't eat that much meat because we know it's not good for you. So what you start to see is that people will adopt that identity and say, I'm a reducer, I'm a flexitarian. But when you look at actually what they're eating, they're not really reducing anything at all. It's just kind of an identity they've taken on, which the social movement, of course, is going to love because people can get on board and feel like that they're associated with this animal cause, even though they haven't done anything. And the animal rights movement is unfortunately not pushing them to do anything. So it kind of exists in this limbo. And in fact, there was a couple, a couple of those articles I looked at where people who identified as flexitarian actually ate more animals. <laughs> They've told themselves in their mind, well, this is the good person I am. And they're, they're not even, it's, it's not even like attached to reality. So that we need to be very, very careful me. about flexitarianism as a strategic matter. Yeah. Other, other sort of, uh, well, I don't know, obstacles or other things that might stop us being in a vegan utopia. Um, often you know veganism is seen as sort of middle class and vegan food's expensive and you know it's not accessible to everybody and you know um uh, you know it, it's not going to happen because of that um you call this a myth in your you know how to argue with vegans um book benny um is it is it a myth i mean i just you know I, I like to think that us middle-class people just get enlightened first. <laughs> but, but, you know, so talk to me a little bit about that because I mean, fake meat and, and, and meat replacement products are expensive, crazy expensive. And actually going out for a meal and having the vegan option is no cheaper than, you know, having a steak or something, which is ridiculous because it shouldn't be, you know, that shouldn't be the case. But, you know, it is veganism for everybody Benny, that's not holding us up, is it? I, I think it is for everybody, yeah. I mean, um, I'm working class. I'm from a council estate. Um, so, and I think um, what I really like to see on Instagram and that type of thing was more of these type of people that are, there was a vegan trucker 
guy and he was just showing what he ate every day. And I thought that's brilliant, that rather than seeing the typical, you know, kind of people that go around restaurants and that type of thing. It was like just a normal working class bloke, really. And, I, you know, I'd love to see more of that, like what they and people that work and what are they picking up for their lunch, that type of thing. Um, so I think in terms of accessibility, um, yeah, it'd be better to improve accessibility, definitely to, you know, poorer areas where there's food deserts, that type of thing. But we need to shatter a lot of myths about the type of people that are vegan. I mean, I think in America, the um, largest demographic is people of color that are vegan anyway. So certainly over there, it might be different here. I'm not sure. I know, yeah, in the U.S., the Black, black Americans mm. are the fastest growing vegan dem demographic. Yeah, yeah. A lot of that has to do for, for food justice reasons. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because, of course, you know, your, your basic vegan ingredients, your, you know, your, your, your lentils and your, you know, your brown rice and um, well, all of those kind of things, you know, the unprocessed vegan food is some of the cheapest food you could possibly lay your hands on and and that certainly you know money certainly shouldn't be an obstacle um for your everyday for your everyday vegan um i want to ask you because because there'll be people who say this is the answer to the world becoming vegan and i and it makes me quite icky the feeling of it as someone who never liked me i want to ask you both uh -oh. about lab <laughs> uh -oh. i know i've got to ask you though because that's what people will say oh yeah like if they grew it in a you know, a factory, then yeah, if it tastes the same, if it's just as good, brilliant. What about lab meat? All right, well, first off, it still continues to harm animals and there's lots of articles out there people can look up and, and learn more about that. But I think I'd like to tackle this from a sociological perspective. First off, the health consequences are not gonna be abated at all. It's still toxic for humans to eat large amount of animal products or really any animal products, I would say. But I think symbolically, it's super problematic. What do these symbolically represent in our society? Technically, that's not an actual animal that was killed. What does it mean for society where we still see them as objects to consume in a society that's still very violent against animals? Yeah, I agree with that, um, about, about the symbolism. Uh, I think there's been other studies as well about um, the kind of public reaction to it has not been as great as people have... Um, kind of hoped really um i think it is quite a tech bro thing and they thought oh we'll just kind of change things this way and yeah uh, but yeah the for some reason the public find it a bit icky as well you know um yeah i think it's one of them things it's not for me if it's if, you know if you look at it in a utilitarian way it's reducing harm maybe but i'm not a utilitarian anyway so um, it, it's some, it's one of them. It, I wouldn't eat it anyway. I think I've just been vegan and not had any meat too long now to even contemplate going back to eating that anyway. So for the rest of my life, it's a no for me anyway. How many I people think... have had like an Impossible Burger and been able to mm. say this is a this is fake? Oh. <laughs> like we already have really realistic taste yeah, yeah. stuff. Like I'm happy with bean burgers, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's an interesting point as well and it and I think it goes back to the you know it, it's really fascinating having you um in this episode Corey um it goes back to that um you know those kind of systems and stuff and it goes back to you know also that thing about people sort of thinking that they you know they 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 don't want their choice taken away and and we do it you're right we do it with lots of things it's not just veganism it's like you know with other environmental issues you know we need to stop 
consuming so much of everything. And yet what we try and do is make products that are less that we can consume that are slightly less bad than other products you know and it's like the the, the core problem is our high levels of consumption of everything and our you know plastics and you know all the rest of it and we're always looking for some kind of fix to that rather than the fix within you know our our greed and our our perceived need of all these things and i think you know that's that's the other thing about lab meat is, yeah, but I need meat, so I'd eat lab meat. But I think you're right, Benny. I think people do go a bit, ew. So hopefully that one is, you know, is not going not gonna to push through and be the answer to anything. Um, before you both go, I would like, um, and I, I hope you're going to have really different approaches to this. Um, so, so we are going to make Vegan Utopia. The three of us, we start, right? Okay, we start here, we start today. It's, I mean, I, we've already started, but you know, I'm, I, I'm just, I'm forming a working group here, guys, all right? <laughs> so we're gonna make Vegan Utopia. Um, what are you gonna do, Benny? Uh, you know, obviously what you already do, but what is the really, you know, if you had to drill down to the one thing you think you can do and do do and one approach, what what is it and this is going to be a much harder question for you Corey because I think you have all this incredible academic backbone to it but but Benny what's the what's the one the one tack that you could take that maybe some of us listening could could also adopt oh it's, it's a good question yeah I think it's attitude change is kind of what I concentrate on because really I'm, I'm trying to get people to not see animals as commodities basically I'd say you know so going back to the lab meat there you're still seeing animals as products and you know could things slide back from that then whereas if you I think when you become vegan it's a change in attitude and it's a change in values and that's what I'm trying to get you know it's, it's harder than vegetarianism but vegetarianism erases that so it doesn't really include the values I'm trying to get across and um, if, if it's about how I envisage the world kind of looking as well um uh, you know when we go vegan it's um i think we're gonna have to think about what we'll do with all the extra land um because we would be minimizing land use so we'd be looking at policies there for protecting a lot of land for animals and nature and providing safe corridors for migration that type of thing so i think it's quite exciting in a way looking at the world we could have and the new relationship we could have with animals. It's, you know, we, we focus a lot on the negative of what the current relationship with animals is. I think we wanna try and foster a new relationship with animals. And that will be the new vegan world. will be kind of being able to look animals in the eye and say, I don't exploit you anymore, that type of thing. That's really beautiful, Benny. And do you know what? I don't think I've ever allowed myself um, to think that far to think to that possibility of just because it just seems impossible in my lifetime I wouldn't see it so thank you for describing it like that because that's a, a beautiful little dream that that we can make a, a reality let's hope Corey what yeah it's hard, hard for me to ask you what's the one thing because you're doing a myriad of things already but what's what's the one thing we could all think yeah that's that's a good way to go forward well I guess as the social movement specialist I think that probably one of the easiest things that we have in our control is our own movement. So I would say start looking at our movement and how we can start returning to that original vision that the founders of the vegan society had. 
that some of the people in the 70s and the 80s who were revitalizing the animal movements, some of the ideas that they had, how can we start thinking about veganism as central to what we do? And then also, how can we systemically achieve that? So I'm starting, I, I have noticed in the past few years, we're starting to see more and more um, smaller, usually smaller nonprofits starting to think about um, how can we support farmers in other ways? How can we um, encourage the government to have plant-based meals in schools and things like that, that actually streamline, make the choice, make the path of least resistance to be vegan. And pushing, so being making those systemic changes is what I think we could be aiming for in our own social movement. So I, again, that leaves it up to the activists. It leaves it up to the people who are running those those organizations. But I guess my last point to that is one of the effects of this kind of neoliberalism, neoliberalization of our social movements, is that increasingly activists on the ground activists have been disconnected from the planning, organization, and leadership of these major nonprofits. Again, the vegan society is like the last holdout where me as a member, I can actually vote and have a say. So I think that one of the things that individual activists listening to this can do is to start pushing to have more involvement with the nonprofits that they care about or that are near them and, and trying to have create more of a democracy. And so it's not just people who are at the top beholden to the foundations who give out the grants, but also beholden to the activists who are you know who have who have these these relationships with other animals or want to see better relationships with other animals and it's not just about that bottom line dollar it's about a vegan world so i don't want yeah just that's my last point i don't want people to feel disempowered because i'm talking about system level change i think we within our own movement can start that system change i, I don't think you're making anyone feel unempowered i think we're all feeling more empowered from this conversation today and just fine yeah uh, Benny's fist pumping. Um, and and finally, Corey, what, what is a vegan world? I mean, Benny made me nearly cry then when he said we can look animals in the eyes and say, you know, we're not going to harm you. What does a vegan world look like for you? Pa paint us a beautiful picture, Corey, that we can all see when we close our well, eyes. It's a bit different, though. I mean, I, I definitely do not envision a world where humans don't interact with other animals. We are a social species and we've always interacted with other species. But I do see a world where we in domestication. So that means supporting the domestic animals that we have, the ones that we've brought into being, but ending the practice of breeding on all fronts. Does that mean the end of dogs and cats? I doubt it. <laughs> dogs and cats have been around before we were breeding them, so they'll probably still be around. Uh, we've kind of co-evolved together, but that will probably mean the end of domesticated cows and chickens and other animals who, by the way, they've been so genetically manipulated that they don't live healthful lives. Um, and this is not to bash, like, you know, it's not to say if you're disabled, you have a miserable life, but a lot of these animals have disabilities that really impair their ability to have a good life and to live the full life. So I would end domestication. And so we'd have much more equal footing with other species we share the planet with. It sounds beautiful. Thank you both so much. Um, thank you, Dr. Corey Wren, a vegan sociology lecturer at the University of Kent, co-director of the Centre for the Study of Social and Political Movements, as well as the founder of the Vegan Feminist Network and the International Association of Vegan Sociologists. You can find Corey on Twitter at Dr. Corey Lee Wren and Facebook at Corey Lee Wren and Instagram at Corey Lee Wren and Benny Malone is an animal rights author whose book How to Argue with Vegans can be found on Amazon available as both paperback and Kindle edition and you can follow him on Twitter at Benny Malone UK or Instagram at Benny underscore Malone 
or subscribe to his YouTube channel, Vegan, of course. Thank you both so much for joining us. It's been a really fascinating look into the complexities, but not impossibilities of breaking down the barriers between the non-vegan world and the vegan world, which is what we all aspire to. So thank you so much. You've, you've filled my head full of uh, positive thoughts and desire to go out there and uh, change the world. Thank you both. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> And if you'd like to let us know your thoughts and ideas about achieving a vegan utopia, you can email us podcast at vegansociety.com or follow us on Twitter at Vegan Society or Instagram at The Original Vegan Society or on Facebook. We'll be back for another episode of The Vegan Pod next month. So if you've enjoyed the discussion today, don't forget to subscribe or you'll miss an episode. Bye all. <laughs>